we may well find out in the end that the court are not actually adequate to answering the question, what would justice for Grenfell be like, look like, feel like? For me, I would feel that we're, getting, we're having something that might answer to justice when we have, if, we, if there was a situation in which the voices of these publics I'm talking about, the people I'm talking about, the people who immediately died uh, the, and their families, uh, the people who are residents who've been over the years making noises about this, um, if there was a, a way of having a forum in which those voices would be assured that they will be heard, that they have power, uh, then I might say, I can see there's something called justice. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle. Hello everyone. Today, my guest is Colin Prescott, who is a, a resident of North Kensington uh, since 1958. He's a sociologist who worked in film, in theater, in TV, and he's the head of the Institute for uh, Race Relations in London. And we are. Not the head, the chairman. The chairman, I'm sorry. Uh, and we are recording this conversation in North Kensington itself. It's outside, that's why you hear a little bit of wind. Hopefully, it'd be okay. Um, and um, and we are in front of the Grenfell Tower uh, that on June 14, 2017, burned uh, and uh, and and killed 72 people. We're in a in the site of remembrance, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna be walking a little bit during this conversation. Uh, good morning, Colin. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much for meeting me. Uh, you've wrote a you've wrote a very important and powerful piece for the phenomenalists in the past, and this is a way to also uh, continue uh, this collaboration we did, and to have maybe a, a little bit of an update on uh, the justice for Grenfell uh, uh, movement. Could you could we maybe start by having you describe where we are in every we, possible meaning? Like we are very we are not we are at the base of the Grenfell Tower. Uh, at the top, the tower is now covered in plastic sheeting quite tidily, and at the very top is what's become a well-known sign of, uh, of the Justice for Grenfell campaign, a green heart, uh, with the slogan next to it, Grenfell forever in our hearts. It feels increasingly as though for the moment all we can be sure of that we will get from the campaign Justice for, for Grenfell is that it, we keep it, we make sure we keep Grenfell forever in our hearts, the people, the families directly affected, as well as the humiliation of the community that uh, is represented by the disaster of 72 people, uh, the last count, 
being killed in that fire. That's where we are. Uh, it's kind of noisy. Uh, there is still dispute and debate going on about what will happen on the site, this to this site, whether the tower will come down, what will replace it, what's to happen. That is for future. Because most immediately what's happening is that the people who were who hurt, the families who, who's, who, who, whose relatives died, are the people who fled and survived the fire that night and now live with trauma, they're being rehoused and so on, uh, that their, their needs are first and first of all looked after. Um, physical needs, but also uh, psychological needs, and also, it seems to me, the biggest one, political needs. Mm. Because the greatest need is to make sure that this kind of contempt and humiliation of a community, which leads to disaster, does not happen again. Uh, it is already possible that it can happen in, in many parts of England. Uh, it has been found out since Grenfell that there are up to 430, 440 other towers like Grenfell with the same uh, physical designs, the same inflammable uh, materials covering the tower that could cause a disaster should a fire start in the country. Uh, the state, the government of the land is yet to point out how it hopes to address these comprehensively, these situations. So there are people who are going to bed every night still nervous, anxious in their homes, yes, uh, because they live in conditions like those of the Grenfell Tower. Meanwhile, the state's response, <coughs> Uh, to say something else about where we are in relate to this. The state's response, as everybody will have realized, I think everybody knows globally, um, is to set up an inquiry, government inquiry. Uh, we may have a variety of responses to the idea of a government inquiry. It is the very same government that was in charge, the same systems in charge, that led up to Grenfell, that we are appealing to, to have an inquiry that will offer some kind of justice to these people. So, but one understands how the people who, who hurt, who are in immediate need, uh, material need, um, psychological need, I repeat myself a little, uh, would want to ask of the state. Because the state, although it often looks as though it's a state not of the people, it's the ruling classes who run the state, the state is in fact uh, something that, uh, that, is, that has a responsibility to all the people in the land. It is a, if you like, the state is, I say, I say somewhere else, the state is a site of struggle. Yes, we must, we're always having to struggle to make sure that the state and its agencies are responsible to us, are accountable to us. So it's a site of struggle. It's not, it's not the, the ruling people's state, it is our state. <laughs> so we have a right, the Grenfell uh, residents, the people, the people who are injured directly, have a right to insist that the state is, serves that some responsibility towards them. So they go to the inquiry in the hope that it will offer them something, that it will, it will, it will offer something that looks like justice. Mm -hmm. It will at least open up the truth. We've had uh, just over a year of that state inquiry sitting, the law is giving evidence and so on. It's, for, it's, it's made a report, it's going to be reported in two, in two sections. It's made its first report after one year. And what it said was, uh, it looked in that for the first uh, part of the, of the inquiry, they looked at what happened on the night, on the particular day, the occasion of the fire. Uh, how it happened, who was there, what the police did, what the uh, fire brigade did, the authorities and so on, to, to look at all that. Mm. It looked very thoroughly at it. And it came out with an interesting statement, uh, not a statement against the people. It came out saying, um, to be to summarize for me from where I'm standing, for us who, those of us who talk about justice, for it came out saying, we have discovered from looking at just the night 
that there are some big questions. It looks as though there is real culpability uh, on the part of uh, the, the governing authorities and, uh, and the, uh, the contractors and the builders, um, the local state and national state, in regard to creating the conditions in which Grenfell occurred. Uh, there is some responsibility since the people had been of the locality and living in the, in the house itself have been making protests to him saying this is the, there are dangerous things here which could cause people to die. There's evidence, it's, uh, this, uh, all this evidence, this is all said. But those requests, those uh, campaigns, those questions were treated with total contempt. By the, by the state local authorities and of course uh, uh, the people who were employed, the contractors, people contracted to look after the property, uh, to build the property, to renovate in the property, uh, are also culpable. Um, and the second part of the, of the inquiry is going to look at those roles. Yes, it's going to look at those and indeed to see if where the what, what kind of responsibilities there are. Unfortunately, at the start of, this, of the second part of the inquiry, which is only a few months ago it started, it immediately stalled. It stalled because uh, the contractors, the people who were responsible for putting up the building um, and so on for the, all the safety, the safety inside the building, uh, have made a request to the, to, the, to the inquiry and the judge who's heading the inquiry saying they would like to have immunity. If they are to speak the truth, they want to be assured that they will be immune from criminal charges or proceedings coming directly off what they say to the inquiry. This is extraordinary. And we're, in the, we're all of us waiting now to see what the Attorney General, which is the, made the top legal authority in the land, will say. Because the judge who heads the inquiry has put that request to, to, the, to the Attorney General and everybody's waiting, the judge is waiting, the Grenfell people, families are waiting, the Grenfell, just for Grenfell movement is waiting to see what happens next. But of course you will realise that this means that everybody is now very disturbed about what exactly what is going to be happening with this process of engaging with the state in order to seek justice for Grenfell. That's where we are. Yeah. And, um, I'm sorry to be so long-winded. Uh, that's actually <laughs> that's actually perfect as an introduction. And um, and uh, perhaps now that we sort of set this, we should also insist on um, on the neighborhood aspect and also how this fire does not happen in a sort of political vacuum. Uh, most of most people who died were uh, people of the racialized working class. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, many people are uh, undocumented workers as well who've been asked uh, absolutely uh, despiteful questions uh, following the, in the during the investigation and um, and we are indeed in this neighborhood that is that is very uh, contrasted right it's like it's uh, North Kensington is, is a relatively wealthy neighborhood where you have uh, you have this um, this uh, estate here that has to exist uh, with the contempt of uh, of, um, of management, like the, the one that that placed those uh, those panels that are responsible for the propagation mm. of the fire. So could we could we perhaps start talking about the neighborhood itself? You you told me uh, you told me before we started recording that you always you always situate yourself as well with, uh, within the sort of three circles of people who are affected and concerned by. What happened here in 2017? Could you tell us about that? Well, yes. Uh, like uh, we, everybody uh, who lives close to this tower, everybody within uh, let me within a half a mile radius 
around the tower, everybody has been affected by this. Uh, uh, the, the, of course, and, and I feel as though one has to say there, there are three circles. The, mo the most inner circle will be the people who were in that building on the occasion when the fire started, uh, some of whom managed to get out, some of whom were trapped and died. Uh, and those are the first people who, of course, had to be helped. Literally, on the, in the days immediately after the fire, where would they live, how would they eat, um, who, who would comfort them uh, psychologically, uh, therapeutically. Um, so those were the first, that was the first call. Uh, so that's the first set of, set of people who are involved in justice, uh, justice for them. Immediately surrounding that are the people who, those of us, like me, uh, I live uh, 300 meters away from the tower. Uh, uh, we saw it um, uh, and we, f uh, so we too have a kind of trauma that comes from, from having to live through that experience of the helplessness of it, the hopelessness of it. Uh, and that's a, that's a second ring. And the residents, yes, uh, of residents. Then there are other, the, the third ring will be, it seems to me, up the, in the, the defense campaign, in the, in the justice campaign, will be people who I would call a local activists, professional activists. They could be lawyers, um, they, I mean, all sorts of people, but they're activists who've been, who've been doing things in, the, in and for the community. As we know, communities look after themselves. When in, in the absence of things looking after them, the communities throw up their own self-help. This whole community, this, this, the area that I live in, has a history of all that, from the time I was a boy to now today, in the wake of Grenfell. Uh, and that bunch of people uh, are also involved in, the, in, the, in the, the campaign and have a feeling for the campaign and an interest in the campaign. Because the, amongst those are the people who, over the years before the fire, are the people who were, who were making notes, who belonged to the, to the residents' campaigns, local campaigns, who wrote to the local authorities saying, listen, this is not right, this is, looks dangerous, this is a, the, 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 something should be done, someone will be harmed, who were doing it, and who were having the, the authorities and the management uh, corporations looking after the tower treat them with total contempt and turn them away. Now, they, so, they, so they now have a voice, they, are, so they have a voice which they want to speak. I say there are three layers. The first, first are the people who are most immediate. And they, in a sense, have the biggest, the, the loudest voice, or are permitted to have the loudest voice uh, because they have the, 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 the hardest beating hearts, yes, around the Grenfell thing. But the other rings of people, I belong to, to if you like, to the, to, the, to the outer ring of a resident who's been here a long time and who has, therefore, a certain feeling about this place, who understands mm. the hurt. Um, of being treat, treated in, in, uh, with contempt by the, by the authorities over the years. And if that's okay, can we talk just a tiny bit about this third circle? Because I think that, I mean, many people worldwide were extremely shocked by what happened, which also means that many people, uh, for better or for worse, wanted to get involved in helping. I guess, I guess on the ground it translated into some uh, sometimes some very uh, basic action, actions that was very needed, but maybe um, on a on a sort of slightly longer term, I think it might it might ask questions and it might teach us about what is good solidarity and what is bad solidarity. Well, how you. do you how do you how yes. do you gain trust? How do you uh, betray that trust? Uh, and so, what are what are maybe for you the lessons we can learn from like this sort of flux of people with sometimes maybe a severe complex? Uh... I don't know that I have a lesson. I have an experience which says that it is difficult. 
we all have the inclination, we all feel it, uh, and, and if we're political even, even more so, we, we feel it, not just a, uh, an emotional response, but a political response to the situation. But I, uh, I'm not speaking for everybody else in the, in the movement or the campaign, but I, in a sense, I am humiliated, at, or I, I'm certainly slowed down, by the fact that I can't go any faster, I can't go any faster than the people at the center of those circles I talk about. And to the extent that the people who were injured directly, whose, fam whose relatives died, who are suffering the trauma, are saying, we haven't yet, we do not yet feel that our, our need is being addressed. Yes, Their voice dominates what you can do. I may want to make a political movement. I may want to have a people's tribunal that, uh, instead of a state tribunal. I may want to have a campaign that, that gathers all the people in the, in, around, the, around the country, actually, who live in similar circumstances, to, be, to begin to have a, some kind of campaign that joins yes, the, 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 Grenfell, the Grenfell moment, the Grenfell justice moment, so to speak. But you can't get there while the people who are immediately in the middle are still hurt yes, and screaming. Yes, you have to humbly acknowledge that that is the first space. And that slows down the degree to which you can say, oh, I am, I am political, I will make the demand, solidarity is, uh, is all. And so, of course, all those things hang, but you cannot simply move with those while these complications of actuality, these actual complications exist. So, in that sense, you, 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 you have to be always ready to, to be in a movement, always ready to campaign, uh, but sometimes uh, it, uh, you, you, you have to just be quiet. Mm. Uh, I've written somewhere else, indeed I wrote for you, about the, the march that happens yes, the, in, in the wake of Grenfell. There is a march every month, on the 14th of every month, because it was the 14th of, the mo of June that this, that this the first incident, that the death disaster occurred. We have a march. It is a silent march. It's interesting that it's a silent march. It's not a sloganizing march. There are some slogans, but they're quietly on posters. And they say, most of them simply say justice for Grenfell. Uh, they say, can we have the truth? Huh? Um, so statements of hope. But when one is on the march, one rehearses. In the silent march, it's interesting. It is loud in one's head. You're rehearsing all the time the, the answers to the questions, the questions and the answers that, you are, that you're raising now. Uh, how, when, yes, in what manner will we, will we manage this? Um, uh, and what do we do while we're waiting for the justice, so to speak? So those are, those are simply questions in the mix of, of my reality. I cannot pretend that, that any of us know how to structure yes, a movement that makes sure that we, that we get what we want. It even opens questions as to, we will find out, we may well find out in the end, that the court, the existing structures, are not actually adequate to answering the question, what would justice for Grenfell be like, look like, feel like? For me, I would feel that we're getting, we're having something that might answer to justice when we have, if, we, if there's a situation in which the voices of these publics I'm talking about, the people I'm talking about, the people who immediately died uh, the, and their families, uh, the people who are residents who've been over the years making noises about this, um, when those voices if there was a way of having a forum in which those voices would be assured that they will be heard, that they have power, mm. hmm? uh, then I might say, I can see for something called justice. Uh, it's, it, is beyond, it is beyond even 
It is beyond even uh, identifying the people who were at the head of the local state or the head of the corporations or the head of the, uh, the building management company who behaved badly and, and, and charging them with, uh, with something, maybe finding them. Or it, the justice I'm talking about actually goes beyond that, my sense of what would, what would make justice. It is what do we want the, the people's controlled legacy of this horrible moment to be? It's a big question. Uh, you may not call it a lesson, but I, I think it's absolutely crucial. So thank you so much for that. Um, should we start walking? Yes. So, um, because I would be interested in also making sure that our listeners who are not so familiar, perhaps for some of them, with the, the political history of London, understand well in which uh, sort of spatial politics did... Uh, did this happen? Okay, that's a little bit noisy. I'm going to cut for just a bit. <laughs> All right, so we're back. Um, yeah, so this neighborhood of North Kensington, which even the name itself is, is can be uh, each name for this neighborhood, whether it's Notting Hill, uh, North Kensington, like there's... Or the Grove, that we the, call it. Or as the we Grove. Ladbroke Grove, the Grove. <laughs> what, what are the different, maybe, political implications between those three different names? Ah! Well, <laughs> when, when I was a boy <laughs> in 1958, when I came from the Caribbean uh, to join my mother here, uh, this North Kensington was absolutely what people would undoubtedly call slum. It was the ghetto. Uh, it was full of people. People were living in, in broken houses, uh, houses that didn't have proper plumbing in them. Uh, houses that were shared, multiple shared by many, many families, more families than would normally live inside of those places, are uh, typical uh, for uh, poor arriving migrants uh, in, the, in the metropolis. Um, and it was like this for 20 or 25, 30 years, actually continued in this kind of way, changing very slowly. And then, and then changes began to very, happen very rapidly. Uh, new, a new uh, major road was built through the area, which meant that uh, the redevelopers, the, the urban improvers, had an opportunity to, to simply clear out many of the houses and to move the populations. So the population that I lived in, the intensely Caribbean-centered new migrant population that I lived in when I was a, a boy, a teenager in North Kensington, is no longer here. Uh, it's changed a lot. North Kensington is very interesting, actually. Where I, where I live, I come to find out as I'm here. It has, it has, a, it has a past in which a, a, a great majority of the population locally in North Kensington would have been Irish. It, th after that, it has a past in which there were little p pockets, really important of Jewish uh, people, migrant settlers. Uh, they've, they've now moved on and moved out. Uh, it later has... Uh, Spanish uh, populations and some of the, there are markers around of this there are some churches uh, for the Jewish population that are still here that people still come to in a way um, the Spanish population there are still some Hi. how are you doing <laughs> um, and and after the Spanish some Italians and after that uh, Moroccans uh, and, and broader North Africans. And now today, to, to make this go much faster, from the place where North Kensington, where as a boy, 
I lived with mainly working class white people, working class black people, uh, the black people had recently arrived and settling. Uh, now I live in a North Kensington in which the houses are lived in and the little schools that are thrown up uh, have there's quite an intense French population and Russian population in North Kensington. These are not poor people. These are, not <laughs> these are the people who give the, uh, around whom the title gentrification has been used in, uh, in the area in which I live. That's a huge shift. Uh, when I came here as a boy, I was 13, I'm now 75. <laughs> so I've lived through that huge change in this area. Uh, and when I was here as a boy in the, in the 50s, this is the place, North Kensington, in which, as I think I've said for the Funambulist in the little piece I wrote for you before, in which there were, in 1958, what people have called race riots. There were serious, serious uh, runnings on the streets over several days, maybe even weeks, uh, very intensely, well, it went on for longer than that, but very intensely over a few weeks of what we call the race riots, where uh, the new, the smallish, relatively small, black Caribbean migrant settler population had, were beginning to, to, to live, and they were being attacked in their streets, certainly after dark, by groups of people who were stirred by explicit fascists. Mm. Britain's most famous fascist, uh, Oswald Mosley, um, a, a, a friend of the, of the Nazis in the, in, the, in the nasty period for Europe, um, uh, was operated in North Kensington, had an office in North Kensington, stirring people and uh, trying to point out, he amongst other people, that trying to convince them that it was the presence of these uh, new black migrant settlers that was making their lives so miserable. A nonsense, of course, a total nonsense. But enough for disgruntled people, people who don't know and who are desperate to be stirred by wicked forces, so they, be, they, would come, they came together and attacked people in a variety of ways. Uh, this went on for a few weeks until the, settler, the new settler population managed to organize itself more and more to defend itself. Mm. Uh, and it, interestingly, the, the police forces uh, intervened, this I'm now talking about 1958, to stop the, the nightly attacks that were occurring to people only when, only when the, the, this population, uh, the black population, uh, made it clear that they were organized to, to fight the final, the final fight. Mm. Um, that's, that's the deep past history. Uh, I, I've lived in a, in a society in North Kensington that's been very proudly a kind of ahead of the curve in Britain in terms of, quote, living convivially with multiculturality since that time. Because it is as though not just the black but also the white population in the black and white population in North Kensington became the most, I'll use a strange word, civilized part of the, of the land. In a, in a way, we were terrific. It was, it was, a, it was an anti-racist community, so to speak, mm. coming off those riots because people understood it. Because one thing that happened that was very interesting, about seven or eight months after the height of the race riots in 1958, uh, in, in early-ish in 1959, uh, there was a famous, yes, a famous attack. I call it lynch because that means a mob attack. On, uh, on a young ma a man called Kelsoka Crane. Uh, he was from Antigua in the Caribbean, one of these early settlers. And he was stabbed and killed 
by a group of young men on the street. Not unlike the Stephen Lawrence case, which came many, many years later and is very, very famous in London. No one was ever uh, arrested or um, prosecuted for the death of Kelsoka Crane. But what happened in the community was that it came together. A massive funeral, huge funeral was held in Ladbroke Grove, attended by masses of the community, black and white. Uh, and in a way after that, we all behaved as though that the riots were an embarrassment to our community. And we decided to live, we, it was, we made without ever anybody ever explicitly saying, to live convivially with each other. And it was ahead of the game. It was one of the places in London where you would notice that whereas in other places in London and the country, black and white animosities were still explicit on the street and all that kind of stuff. Here, that suddenly it was as though that was not, we all knew it was not to be tolerated. So Notting Hill began to have that cachet. Yeah? Um, and interestingly, I think it is because of that wonderfully civilized cachet that it began to be attractive to middle classes, first uh, English white middle classes, to come in to live in this civilized uh, social, social context uh, in a way. Even before, this is before the, the rise of what we now call gentrification, this, this white thing. But that began the swing to come to live in this place. And the world well-known festival also probably has something to do with it, right? It started exactly at that moment in 1959. You're thinking it? of carnival. The carnival, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Yes, the, the well, in, in, the carnival is interesting because it begins. This is the other, and it's a marker. It is the carnival is a marker of this history I've just been talking about from '58 when people first came. We will turn down Portobello Road here. Uh, Now it's raining. <laughs> Now it's raining and we see some huge Union Jacks over the street, which is yes. scary in those times. It's <laughs> just saying that we're in Britain. Yeah, <laughs> just in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, where was I? The carnival. Yes, the carnival. So I say in 59, at the, as the, if you like, the, the post-climax of the 58. 1958 riots, uh, this man Kilthorpe Crane was killed. And one of the things that happened was that uh, there began to be an, uh, there was a, a demand that, that went to the, to the parliament saying, in a way, justice for Kilthorpe Crane would have been the cry, led by a very famous black woman activist called Claudia Jones. Um, this same woman, Claudia Jones, who started the, the who went to the make a protest about the killing of Kelso Cochrane. She ran a newspaper called the West Indian Gazette and she decided to have a sort of, as a, as a fight back and a marker of the fight back against the riots, to have a, a carnival, a West Indian carnival, but it was not on the street. It was indoors. Mm. It was in town halls. And she did this carnival for three or four or five years um, before she died. She died quite young. Uh, so she started the spirit of, the, of a carnival as a healing force, yes, as well as a, a form of cultural expression of being here, uh, but not on the street. It wasn't until the early 60s that, in the early 60s, another part of the, uh, 
of the community, I say, that responded to 58 and decided to be, that it was important to be convivial and to be together in this space, uh, uh, headed by a woman called Rooney Laslett, called for uh, a fair, a festival fair, not called a carnival even, on the streets uh, in North Kensington. And people came, and amongst the people who came were people who were part of the carnival indoor festivals that Claudia Jones had started onto the street with the steel pans. And this element of the English fair, it was only a small element when it began, when the fair began, uh, this element began to go around the streets, literally took to the streets and people drive behind and it caught, it caught the imagination of everybody. And it is from there that the carnival started. We are now on a street which is called Blenheim Crescent. Hmm. And I've stopped here because just across the road there, there's no marker. Yeah. You won't know it. But where the where it says uh, next to the one that says tattoo um, on this on this Blenheim Crescent, there was the place that in 1958. That in <laughs> you got a call. Yeah. There was the place that in 1958 uh, the Caribbean community uh, assembled in the in the building, and uh, you can see the where the roofs are. They prepared. Uh, defenses, things to throw down. Uh, one, one, the, the rumors say I was only a little boy, so I wasn't in there. Mm. <laughs> rumors say Molotov cocktails. They were seriously going to defend themselves against the the white uh, mobs stirred by 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 the by the fascist uh, Mosley, um, and they were ready. Uh, the word went out to the police. The police said, "Well, this is this is not quite what, what we thought might, should should happen." So they came and they stopped. They stopped the any. Um, white racist attackers coming and they calmed down the people here and this was and this signaled the stop of the of the everyday uh, riot situation that happened at that time and so as you were saying earlier is like it's both uh, the sort of um, the this sort of sense of conviviality use that word um, that was created after this uh, murder in 1959 uh, this racist murder um, and the, the carnival and uh, and many aspects of this neighborhood that in turns made it attractive uh, in sort of some as a social pre, space pre gentrification yeah. and but now we're more I mean we're completely in what now we we're completely in the new era what um, how is the how has it changed being able to defend itself to define itself. To defend itself. Ah, uh, when you say the neighborhood, you mean the neighborhood of like like me, the old yes. the old neighborhood. Yes. Uh, it has not been able to. Yeah. It's not been able to because um, the forces are much bigger than North Kensington that are making that are making this happen. Much bigger. Uh, I'd have to say that uh, just. Uh, a mile, yeah. half a mile, a mile away in that direction in west. Is, a, is a thing called Westfield. Westfield is the largest new um, commercial mall uh, scene in the country and, uh, and the best, they, they say. Uh, and it has an effect for a five mile radius around it. Uh, everything is changed for Westfield. In order for that to happen, the, 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 the train line, the underground transport line that you arrived in Ladbroke Grove on didn't now has a new stop called just just along the line here from Ladbroke Grove next next to Latimer Road just beyond the, the tower uh, that was came into existence only to service the Westfield Centre 
that's a, that's a, a real sign of how powerful commerce can be and the, and the market can be. Um, and, uh, and anywhere we look, the markers are, you will go, I, I can name you any number of places, Power Square, which is just at the, at the other end of this street here, Blen and Crescent that we're standing in, um, uh, used to be extremely slum, broken down houses. Um, uh, and now it is, the, the people who live there are people who have a lot of money and who work for, who work in Brussels and travel back and forth. Um, uh, next to me where I live, my street is now, has got a, any large number of French, French living people. I'm not objecting to this, I cannot object to this, this is, they have to live. Um, and and my, my era has changed because there are now in, around me there are three, at least three, I'm not exaggerating, three private paying schools for the children and the families of these families who have moved in that were not there when I was a boy and have, and, and have only recently arrived. So it, is in, it, it has not been possible to stop any of this. The cry from Grenfell, in the, in the wake of Grenfell, um, which you can find in other parts of London too, is one which is saying um, we would like to have this neighbourhood, these, these people on the ground, we would like to have more say in determining the developments the redevelopment uh, in our area, uh, which we've been trying to do so for many years. That wider circle of, of community activists have been saying for many years and being ignored. Grenfell should provide us with a, a platform for saying this is what happens if you ignore these voices, if you treat community voices who care about their communities with contempt. This is what happens. It should be an occasion for, for, for that to have some power to, to amplify the voices of the people on the ground. Uh, we wait to see. Well, Colin, thank you so much for taking us on this walk, uh, me personally and our listeners uh, remotely. Uh, I think uh, I think it's it's something that we we will keep talking about you and I and and uh, in various in various forms. Uh, and in the meantime, I think we're many to want to show you our support and uh, with for justice for Grenfell, so thank you again. Thank you, I, I agree with you entirely. Solidarity, solidarity is key to everything that we, that we do now and from now on, absolutely key. Uh, I want to make a promise too that I will try to write something more coherent than chatting on the street that takes uh, my reflections, my con our conversation about Grenfell one, one step further. Wonderful, I think both, both together work super well together. So thanks again, Colin. Okay. This podcast is produced by The Funambulist. You can listen to dozens of other episodes on your favorite podcast platforms and on our website at thefunambulist.net.